is from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Father, I pray you would use this chapter and your word, Father, to strengthen us as your people, to point us to you, that you would glorify yourself through it and through us, Father. May you bless us, may you be blessed by us as we give this time to you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I know I say this a lot, but especially on uh, special occasions being Palm Sunday, you would expect that we'd be reading the triumphal entry and waving palm branches. And if you know me well enough, we just go right through Scripture. The Bible speaks of Christ in all things. All of it points back to Him and to the cross. And we tend to just focus on sometimes the triumphal entry or Easter or Christmas only on those holidays. And as we like to say at Elm Creek, everything, every Sunday is Christmas and Easter. Now, the hard part about that or the danger of that is then when Easter and Christmas comes along and Palm Sunday, then you just completely ignore it because every, you know, it's every Sunday is Christmas and every Sunday is Easter. And so what we're going to try to do today, because my hope is that you're reading this going, Really? Palm Sunday? Like it's hard enough on a normal Sunday, Mark, and now you're going to do Palm Sunday? Well, I'm not going to do that. My hope is that the Spirit through me is going to do that and point to the triumphal entry, point to Christ as the Messiah, the realization. Now, there might be a little twist on it, Um, uh, twist not in a new twist, but twist maybe as in not quite what we're expecting. But we've been working through 1 Samuel. We're almost to the end. And if you think, how are we going to get Palm Sunday out of this? Just wait till next week. Saul and his sons are killed. And how does that help us to understand Easter and the risen Christ and his life? Um, Palm Sunday, we strive to think of the joy and the triumphal entry, that the Messiah has come, King David has come, and now he's going to lead his people. But what we tend to sometimes forget is that it, the triumphal entry very quickly, very quickly goes from this positive, joyous time to suddenly Jesus stepping up and being king. And acting like king and totally throwing these people who were expecting him to overthrow the Romans 
to suddenly say, I'm not that kind of king. I'm a different kind of king. As we've been working through 1 Samuel, we've seen the life of David, how he is anointed by uh, God to be the next king after Saul is done. God has left Saul, his presence, and now he's with David. And David, pretty much his entire career, his entire life has been trusting in the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And then we get to chapter 27 and all of a sudden David becomes fearful of Saul and he flees to his arch enemies, the Philistines. Um, it gets put in positions where he's, he's going to have to compromise, that he's expected to make raids on Israel. And he can't do that. I mean, he's the anointed king of Israel. That, that just can't happen. So he makes raids on other on the Canaanite towns and brings everything back and says it was from Israel. Um, he's lying his way through just so that he's safe in the hands of the Philistines. And then all of a sudden the Philistines gather for war against Israel and David's expected to fight. The king of the Philistines says, yes, we want you to fight. And the commanders underneath that king say, are you crazy? This is the guy who's who's accredited with killing tens of thousands, ten thousands of Philistines. Why would we have him? Because all he's going to do is turn on us. And so he has to send David away. And David was put in a place where he couldn't just talk his way out of it. David, in that moment or in that time with the Philistines, he was there for just over a year. He forgot who he was. He forgot who the Lord was. Now, the Lord never left him, but he turned, we would call him a wayward son um, in today's, today's terms. We talked about Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of the Lord in our lives. As Saul sought his own kingdom first, he placed his own desires first, he placed the, placed the things of the this world and the approval of those around him first above and beyond the approval of God. And David, being a wayward child, has taken matters into his own hands and he's finding himself in real trouble. The Lord brought him out of him, as we looked last week, so he wouldn't have to actually go into battle against the people he was called to be king over. He sought his safety in the hands of his enemies instead of turning to the one who anointed him as king of Israel. But the beauty is that David may have turned away from the Lord, but the Lord, again, never turned away from him. And now, in today's passage, there's a major shift in David's life as he turns back to the Lord. And that's the rest of the chapter. So we're just going to go right to the rest of the chapter, starting in verse 7 all the way to the end. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered them, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and surely rescue, shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. 
They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that comes against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoiled, the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev and Jatir and Raor in Sifmoth and Eshtemoah and Rachel in the cities of Jeremilites in the cities of the Kenites in Hormah and Borashan and Athak and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So the Amalekites have burned David's home base, Ziklag. They've taken captive everyone in the city and all of the spoil within the city. And this is a catalyst of a major shift in David's life. One from wayward son to obedient, anointed king. David finds himself in a situation that is completely out of his control. This is not something that's new to him. He was just in a situation with the Philistines 
in the same manner, out of his control. There was nothing he could do, and yet God intervened. Well, David and his men, they're so distressed when they come up to Ziklag that they raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever experienced something like that? You're so distraught, you're so down, you've cried so much, you just cannot even cry anymore. You're so exhausted. Their wives and their children are gone. Their home is burning to the ground. And as was true when marching out to war against the Philistine, or with the Philistines against Israel, David could do nothing about the situation. And it only gets worse when everyone begins to blame him for what's happened. His men are talking of stoning him because they were bitter in soul. Rash decisions can certainly be made when we are emotionally distraught, but the blame had to be placed on somebody. And who better to take the fall than the leader who actually brought them into the land of the Philistines, David himself. And so what is David supposed to do? Where is he supposed to turn? What is he supposed to say? It'll be okay. Really? My, my wife and my kids are gone. They're taken. And you're just telling me it's going to be okay. You, what is he going to do? Well, he actually does exactly what he should have done over a year before. He turns to God. He's finally in a position where he's now uh, nowhere to turn but to God. He's at the bottom of the well. He calls for Abiathar the priest and he inquires of the Lord's will. Should we pursue the Amalekites? Are we going to rescue the people? And God answers immediately, pursue for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. And suddenly it's like the old David is back, right? He rallies the troops. They pursue the Amalekites and they win the day. But David doesn't get the credit for the victory. I mean, initially the people give it to him, right? But David corrects him because he realizes that it was the Lord who actually won the battle, not him. When the men who fought tried to keep the spoil from those who stayed with the baggage, you could say essentially the 200 left behind were the support personnel for the army. David refuses to keep the spoil from anybody. They're just as important. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. God's the one who won the battle. God's the one who's the power behind what just happened. So you can't take the credit for it, and I can't take the credit for it. David, the anointed king of Israel, gives glory to the Lord just as he did so many years earlier after he defeated Goliath. You see the shift from the last couple of chapters? Now, you've heard me say over and over again, as we've walked through Scripture verse by verse, if something is repeated in a section, it's probably what? Important. Well, I just love the enthusiasm. It's probably important. If you see something repeated in a passage, you've got to ask the question, why is it there? Why is it said this way? Well, there's an idea that is repeated actually four times over three different verses, and that's all, or the opposite of it, nothing. Verses 18 through 20. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoiled or anything 
that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. There was not a man or a, there was not a woman or a child missing. Everything and everyone that was taken was returned. And that's an amazing result because one would expect to have some sort of collateral damage in a battle, right? It's just property, people, that's, that's the horrors of war. And these men who were distraught and ready to stone David are now suddenly filled with joy and giving him the credit for the victory. How ironic, huh? This is David's spoil, they say. Well, how does that happen? Only God could do such a thing. It's a, certainly a wonderful picture of the restoration of David to the Lord, but, but my question is, did we actually catch where it all started? So this is a, a, a wonderful story. There's a lot of details that we're not addressing, we're not going to, we just don't have time to talk about the Egyptian slave and even to talk about how at the end where yeah, he's giving all this spoil to his friends, a.k.a. he's consolidating his power in Judah because he's about ready to take the throne of Israel. All of that is there. It's all good, but it centers around one hinge. There's something at the beginning of the chapter which I believe is crucial to our understanding of not only this chapter, but understanding of who God is and eventually who Christ is as the Messiah. It's found at the end of verse 6, and it's really easy to gloss over, but this is how it reads. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Again, his wives, his children are gone. His men are speaking of stoning him. He's wailed and wept until there is no more strength left to weep, but what's the greatest word in Scripture? But. Did you see that? But. David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. So what in the world does that mean? It would be easy at this point to just insert our own ideas and our own assumptions about what we think. Oh, to strengthen. It means he went for a run and got his energy back. Uh, you know, what, what does it actually mean? Well, let's get all spiritual that he got on his knees and he prayed. Well, is that really what it means? Because that's a weird phrase. I don't know how many of you guys use that. Like, I woke up this morning, I was a little down, and then I strengthened myself in the Lord. Anybody else use that phrase? The answer is no. If you do, awesome. That would be great. Hopefully you're using it biblically. But what does it actually mean? What does the Bible mean? say about it? And does the Bible reveal to us or at least give us an idea of what it means to be strengthened in the Lord? Because if this is what David is doing and there's such a shift from wailing and weak to suddenly saying, let's get up and fight, there's something about that phrase that made the shift in the change in David and ultimately in his men. Well, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we're not going to go there. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Now Moses is dead. 
The people have gone through the desert. The people of Egypt, you know, they, or of Israel, they left Egypt. They've gone through the desert. The first generation's dead and gone, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're just about ready to enter the land of Canaan to begin the conquering of all the nations, to receive the promised land of God. Moses is gone, and the responsibility of leading the people of Israel has fallen upon Joshua. He's about to lead Israel through this massive campaign, battle after battle after battle against very strong forces and fortified cities, and especially the very first one, which is the gateway to the land of Canaan, Jericho. Needless to say, there's a lot that's on Joshua's shoulders. He's feeling the pressure. He's if you've been in a leadership position and, and you've been in a, something, maybe not obviously similar to this because we're not conquering lands, but if you've been in a difficult situation and you're leading people through that, there is a burden of, how do I do this? How do I, how do I accomplish what I'm supposed to be accomplishing? Now, add to the fact that God says, now go do it, and now we got to do what, he's got to do what God is asking him to do. How does Joshua fulfill that? Well, God says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you you go. Now, we may, did, did you catch the similarity with, with David? David strengthened himself in the Lord, and God says, be strong and courageous. And you say, ah, it's a coincidence. Well, it's actually the exact same word. It's the same word being used in both passages. Why should Joshua be strong? He says in that passage, because the Lord is with him and will deliver to Israel the land that he swore to his fathers. To be strong in the Lord is to have confidence founded upon the promises of God. Because if God promises something, he's always going to deliver on that promise. Let me say it again. If he promises, if God promises something, he will deliver on that promise. Not necessarily in the time that we want him to deliver on that promise, but he will always deliver because he is faithful. God does not lie and he does not break his promises. He is not like us. Humanity. So what about David? If that's true, that to be strengthened in the Lord is to have confidence founded upon the promise of God, then what promise of God did David find confidence in? Well, the beauty of this is you can go to another part of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 23. So if you have your Bibles, turn to that. Now this is really important because this is the other place in Scripture where it speaks of David being strengthened. 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 16 and 17. Now, David's on the run. Saul's about ready. To, he's trying to kill uh, David. Saul is trying to kill David. David's on the run from him, trying to get away. 
Saul's son, Jonathan, whose dear, close, brotherly friends with David. And this is what chapter 23, verse 16 says. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, and these are really important words, how did he strengthen David? Do not fear. Where have we heard that before? It's Joshua. Do not fear. Why? For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Why? Because you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. My father, Saul, my father, also knows this. And they made a covenant together. God had promised David the throne of Israel. And Jonathan, who's next in line to inherit the throne after Saul's gone, he's Saul's son. He's the, he's the prince. He's the one who's next in line. And yet, even Jonathan knew God had anointed David over Saul. He had chosen David to rule instead of Saul. And even Saul himself understood this and knew this. And so Jonathan strengthened David's hand in the Lord by reminding him, don't fear my father. Because one day you are going to be king. Dad's not going to find you. He's not going to kill you. Because God's not going to let that happen. Again, that word strengthen is the same word found in chapter 30, and it's the same word found in Joshua. Saul, the Amalekites, and even David's own men could not keep God from giving David the kingdom of Israel. They just couldn't. They could threaten all they want, but God would not allow it to happen. And at his lowest, David found strength and confidence in the promise of God. We see in a pattern here. Because I think we could go even a step farther and look at the life of Christ. And specifically, we could look at his last week of his life. It's Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. Everybody's waving palm branches. They're so excited that this king has come. They're praising him calling him the next King David. And Jesus weeps over the city. It's true, he is the coming king. So why would Jesus cry? Why would he be weeping over Jerusalem? Well, he's weeping because the people will refuse to recognize him as the true Messiah. They see him as a conquering hero. You're going to relieve us from the tyranny of the Romans and we will rise up and we will be strong again. And all nations will bow down to us. We're not going to be the peons anymore. We're going to be the ones in charge. Just like we were under King David. Jesus is aware that what he's about to endure over the next week is not what we would call enjoyable. He's going to witness the temple being used for commerce instead of worship. His authority will be challenged at every turn. 
His words will be misused against him. He will be completely abandoned, including by his disciples. One of his trusted disciples, Judas, is going to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He will be falsely accused and sentenced to death. And even God the Father will forsake him while he's hanging on the cross. So we, we rightfully remember the triumphal entry, but we cannot forget the coming week. Passion Week. It's not a fun week. There are no Easter eggs on Saturday for Jesus. Let's just put it that way. It's not wrong that we're celebrating Easter and that we're having a a fun time and remembering what Christ did. But he goes to the cross and he endures much pain, not just on the cross, but the entire week leading up to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, his anguish comes to a climax when he prays to his father saying, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, this cup that you have planned for me cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. How can he say that? How can he say such a thing? How can he find the strength to endure through such trials, pain, suffering, and death? Well, it's because he knew the will and the promises of God that he would be given, first of all, all authority on heaven and earth. Matthew 28, I have been given all authority on heaven and earth. He knew that he would rule as heir and king over God's people. That's Matthew 21. And that by the shedding of his blood, a new covenant, a new promise would be established between God and his people. That's Matthew 26 at the Last Supper. Because by the pouring out of Christ's blood, the sins of the Lord's people would be forgiven, restoring them to a right relationship with God. Jesus willingly suffered and died because he confidently rested in God's ability to accomplish exactly what was promised. So he walks in on a day that's full of joy and waving of palm branches and rightfully praising him as the king, the coming king, the Messiah. But he also understands what awaits him over the coming week. And he still goes. He still does it. Now, it doesn't doesn't say specifically he was strengthened. His hand was strengthened in the Lord or he was strengthened in the Lord in any way. But it's inferred because who does he turn to? He doesn't turn to his disciples. In fact, he has his disciples with him and he turns to them and they've utterly failed him. And they're sleeping instead of praying. He turns to his father. And so what does this teach us about who we are as disciples of Christ, as God's children today? Because if we aren't believers, if we have not put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we have not been saved by the grace of God, not by our works, by showing up on Easter and Christmas or every single Sunday in between, if that is not, if we, if we truly believe that God saves us by His grace, bestowing upon us, giving us faith that we might believe 
and he's changing us and transforming us, he's made us his child, then if we have not done that, if that has not happened to us, we don't get Easter. Then it is about eggs. Or as in a conversation I've had with, with somebody whose family member decided to celebrate zombie Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Like, really? That there's, there's like almost blasphemous, right? But that's the way the world thinks. That it's about candy and it's about a day off of work or whatever you may have. But as Christians, we cannot look at Palm Sunday or Passion Week or Easter or Christmas or any other day of our life without going to him and trying to figure out, okay, so what does this mean for us? What is Palm Sunday and Passion Week mean for us? What does it mean that David and Joshua and even Christ himself turned to the Lord in the midst of the deepest troubles in their life? Well, what it means is that we can rest our confidence in the power of God to accomplish what he promises to do in and to and through us. Notice how that's different from, well, God's going to pick me up by my bootstraps and he's going to give me strength to go and he's going to fight my battles and I'm going to gain everything that I lost. That's, that's not the point of the story. That, that happens to David, but as we've said a number of times, we're not David. We're not David. But there is the general understanding that where did David turn to? He turned to God. And if God said, do not pursue, all things are lost, God would still be God. God would still be right. God would still be good. And David would still be strengthened in the Lord. If that's what he promised. But that's not what he promised. He says, no, you were going to be king. They're not going to kill you. You will take the throne. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? I seek your kingdom first. I go to you. What do you want from me? And God says, go. Do this, do that. Well, we as God's people today, as believers, as disciples of Christ, as God's children, saved by grace through faith, not by works, we can rest our confidence that God is going to accomplish what he promises to accomplish. So what, what does he promise? What does he say in Scripture? Okay, so, are you ready for this? I'm just going to spout off a lot of Scripture here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end, at the day of Christ. So what he's saying there is, God has saved you and he's starting to transform you and change you more and more into him. And guess what? It's going to be fully accomplished when Jesus comes the second time. He's going to work every single day. He's accomplishing. Do it. He started a good work in you and he's going to complete it. He doesn't just leave you in the middle of it. He will do it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That means transform you, change you more and more into the character of God, one degree of glory after another, 
And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is going to come a second time. And he's not going to say, sorry, you're not good enough, Mark. No, he's already accomplished that. And he's accomplishing it every day. And then verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Not half the time, all the time. Why? That you may be able to endure the temptation. And then finally, Romans 8, 28-31. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Why? Why, why do we know that God is going to work all things for good, for his good, according to his will and his desire. How do we know that? Well, he says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son, that's sanctification, that's transformation. We're being made into the image of God in order that we might be the, he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers and those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What, what then shall we say to these things? Well, if God is for us, then who can be against us? So we, we could go through all those names or all those words and we can create all this controversy. Here's the point of what, and there's, there's great, I wish to do that, wrestling with all those words. But let's not get past what he's trying to say. He's saying, if God foreknew you, then he's predestined you. And if he's predestined you to be conformed into the image of his son, being sanctified, then he's called you as his child. And if he's called you, then he's justified you, which means you're made right in the eyes of God. And if you're made right in the eyes of God, then he's going to glorify you when Jesus comes again. In fact, he's glorifying you now. So what is if God is for us, who can be against us? That means I can't be against myself. That the love of God, when we come to him, when we bow down to the king, when we seek first the kingdom, his rule, and his reign in our life, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us. He will transform us. And when Jesus comes again, we will be glorified. That is not a, I think maybe you might be. It was no. It's going to happen. How can we have such confidence as God's people today? Because God says so. 
And maybe we don't like that. Maybe we want to try to like work through it and say, well, like, well, I mean, if we just put everything together and logically think through it all, yeah, and if we do that, guess what we're going to find out? That God always keeps his promises. <laughs> he is faithful. He is just. He will do what he promises. And if we are God's children, he says, you will always be my child. And at the end of time, I will glorify you and you will be with me forever. I knew you, and I will glorify you. It's a for sure thing. And this is far from being all the passages that the Bible uses to teach us about God's faithfulness and the confidence we can have in Him. What I'm trying to show is by the weight of just even this small amount of scripture that God's, as God's people, we are strengthened by and we find confidence in the promises of God. So we can learn from David, we can learn from Joshua, we can even learn from Christ, though we are not them, that God is the same God today that he was in the time of those people. He has not changed he wasn't one who kept his promises back then and then decided to change his mind. Nah, they're not really worth it. No, he says, no. You were worth it. And Jesus says, Father, they're worth it. He is always faithful. So you go, okay, so what, what's the application then? Right, we, all, we all love that, right? And you guys, you guys know my stance on that. We probably already know the application. <laughs> Trust in Christ. Be faithful. If God is the same God yesterday and today and forever, then we don't go to the things of this world. Maybe it's just that. If we're really struggling and all we do is go to the things of this world, the world will let us down. It might do a little bit of good, but in the end... You even think eternally? If we're seeking our kingdom first, we're lost. But if we seek Christ first, if we strengthen our hands in the Lord, so if we're going through a situation, we're going like, how am I going to make it through this? God says, you're going to make it through it. Well, how do I know that? Well, because I say that. Then no matter what happens in this world, even should your life be taken from you, you are my child and you will be with me forever. That's where our mindset goes. And when we think of Christ entering the, through the triumphal entry, He is our King. It points to the cross, and the cross eventually points to heaven, salvation found in Him and only through Him. So here's the application. Strengthen yourselves in the Lord, because He will do to, in, and through us as His people exactly what He promises. He will never fail us. Father, I pray that as we, not just today during this celebration and the joy that's found in, in Jesus entering Jerusalem as a triumphant king, Father, we're going to leave this place and we're going to endure things this week that we never expected. We're possibly even endure horrible, tragic circumstances in our life. Remind us as your people, Father, that no matter what happens, 
You will keep us. You will sustain us. You will never forsake us, God. You will do exactly what you say and as your children that you have saved us forever and always. And we are yours and that you are going to accomplish what you promise. Strengthen us, Father, and help us this week to turn to you, to strengthen ourselves in you and, and not in food, not in family, not in money, not in material possessions, for they will all pass away in the end, Father, but you will remain forever. You will always be there for us. Strengthen us, guide us, help us to do that today and this week, Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing our final song together.